about how we are the world, living with compassion. Um, what inspired me to talk about this tonight was a short article in the Sunday paper. It's the only thing worth reading in the whole paper. You didn't miss anything. It was about um, in the University of Virginia on Saturday had a, a program where they brought together seven Nobel Prize, Peace Prize laureates to talk with the students. And it says them... The university hoped to inspire its politically apathetic student body and others into turning their attention away from material concerns for more than a moment to the world's victims of war, genocide, ethnic conflict, and starvation. I mean, it's actually beautiful that they did this. And so, um, in a rare joint appearance, they had several, seven Nobel Peace Prize winners, the Dalai Lama, and Bishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa, and um, Jody Williams, uh, an American who won it together with another American who was also there, Bobby Muller, for their campaign to end um, world landmines in the world. And also there were President Oscar Arias Sanchez of Costa Rica, Jose Ramos Huerta of East Timor, Rigoberta Menchu Tum of Guatemala, and Betty Williams of Northern Ireland. And Aung San Suu Kyi sent a delegate since she couldn't come herself. So just that that even happened is so far out that, um, so that was the first thing, that it even happened, that there's a recognition of how apathetic and materialistic now, we know it's not just the students at the University of Virginia. And I certainly can see in myself how easy it is to get caught up in, our, in my own affairs and just not quite pay attention, not quite remember that, that we are the world. But there's a lot of aspects to this article. Another one is how just um, touching into the possibility of such openness and caring can really affect people. It's like we just need a touch of the truth and it really can affect us. So this is one student saying, I feel so changed by this. You get so caught up with your life and then you see these people who are making so much of a difference. And just various other students saying things like that. And then the other part, and actually what drew me in in the first place, you can't see it, but there's a photo of the Dalai Lama standing behind Bishop Tutu, who's sitting in a chair. And he's cracking up because he's trying to pull Bishop Tutu's hat off. <laughs> now, these two guys, who together have probably seen more suffering than any of us can imagine, they're clowning around. You know, they're not coming in heavy, the weight of the world. It's like to be able to have one's heart opened, in, whether it's South Africa, to Tibet, Chinese, wherever, and they meet the world by clowning around as well as holding all this suffering. It's, it's so beautiful. And so that's what inspired me, both of those aspects of compassion. But that's really in my mind, not just my mind, what we're doing here in our practice. And we talk about, of course, how wisdom naturally manifests in compassion, but I still think it's easy to forget 
to get, you know, even here, so caught up in how's my practice going? You know, am I advancing to the next stage, whatever the heck you think the next stage is, that we forget that it's really about understanding that we are the world and who we are affects and changes the world and that we don't have to be so afraid of opening our hearts to our own and others' suffering. It doesn't necessarily make for a dreary person. No one would call these guys dreary, you know? More lightness than I could imagine. So, opening to the experience of compassion, really incorporating that in our practice, in our understanding. First, just recognizing that it is the natural expression of wisdom, of clear seeing, that just through our practice, the natural expression of oneness or emptiness or non-self, or interconnectedness, whatever way your mind wants to talk about it, the natural manifestation of that is metta and karuna, love and compassion. Whether that's a manifestation just on the level of thought, later moving to speech and action, not so much when you're here, hopefully, but when you leave. The Buddha described this, again, in his Eightfold Path, how natural this progression is. Now, if you remember last week when I talked about renunciation as being one of the three wise intentions, the second step of the Eightfold Path, the first stage being understanding, wisdom. Karuna and metta are the other two wise thoughts or wise intentions. That as we begin to understand ourselves, the world, as it truly is, quite naturally our thoughts and intentions transform to renunciation or generosity, which I know Kamala talked about last night, metta and compassion. So in some ways, all we have to do is keep looking, honestly, and whatever we see, be willing to connect with that in an open-hearted way, compassion naturally becomes stronger and stronger in our way of relating. But the koan I find a lot of my practice, of this whole practice, as we look at the world, is how can we continue to open, to awaken, and to remain awake and open in a world that is so painful, that does have so much suffering in it, that is so confusing. No one's saying it's easy. As you know from being here, from looking at your own lives, it requires enormous courage and persistence and kindness to ourselves, enormous patience. But what's the wonderful fact of our practice is that as we're willing to continue to open to ourselves through our own experience, we necessarily open to the world. You really can't separate the two. Oh, God knows we try. You know the definition of karuna, compassion, 
often given as that quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. I really like that because to me it it feels like just a description of the physical, emotional state of compassion when I experience it. Quivering, not of fear or of suppression, but of just being so touched, you know? And then the response of the connected heart and mind to act, if there's a way to act, to relieve or alleviate that suffering. But if there's not a way to act, there's so often nothing one can do. That quivering of the heart in connection with compassion, with pain, we stay connected even when there's nothing one can do. That's really the trick. And when we talk about the near enemy of compassion, the thing that compassion can often slide into or be confused with, sometimes um, described as pity or sometimes as sorrow, where it's a, it feels like we're caring about the pain and it might even be a genuine motivation to do something about it, but there's that little bit of a quality of distancing, such as I want to do something about this so I don't have to see it anymore, you know? With that little bit of, I I can't take it. Whereas with the true compassion, when you can't do something, you can still hang out there with it, whether it's yourself or somebody else. It's such an interesting phenomenon, really, when, which we've talked about endlessly, how dukkha or unsatisfactoriness or just plain old pain is a fact of life for all beings, certainly all human beings here on this planet. And yet, when we're in pain, like if, if I'm in uh, emotional pain or suffering or some kind of really deep chronic physical pain, isn't it easy to feel sort of alienated or isolated instead of thinking, oh great, now this is a link to all beings? (laughs) Do you feel that when you hit into some of your pain? Oh good, now I'm connecting with the world? Yeah, not too much, huh? (laughs) It's more almost a a shameful thing. Oh, here I am, caught in grief again. You know, we're ashamed of it. Here I am suffering from this chronic disease again. Here I am in lust again, whatever it is. That's almost as if we, we don't have to hide it, but almost we do. And even if we don't think that, it certainly can get reinforced in the world. If we go out, and especially here in America, you know, I teach a lot in Europe and my partner's German. So I get reflected back certain aspects of culture that Others see, perhaps, as particularly American. Franz is always telling me I'm so American, it's unbearable. You know, I could never <laughs> pass for anything else. <laughs> but so our greeting of, oh, how are you? Now, we all know you're not supposed to really say. <laughs> you're supposed to say, oh, fine, thank you, right? And then you move on. And if, you know, oh, if you meet someone in the street, hi, how are you doing? Well, gosh, to tell you the truth, you know, (laughs) they're gone, you know, two-thirds of the people are gone. It's not really reinforced that other people want to know if we're suffering. If you're going on a vacation with friends and you're, you know, depressed, you've got to sort of hide it. You don't want to bring them down. It's it's in our culture (laughs) to some extent. 
And we're so conditioned, it's so ingrained, really, here, to either hide or feel ashamed of our suffering or to try and protect ourselves from it first, others secondarily, that the thought of compassion can get linked with the thought of suffering, not in the way that compassion is, comes out of suffering, but that to be compassionate means we're going to drown in suffering. That compassion can be thought of as a suffering mental state. We forget it's one of the beautiful emotions. It's one of the four boundless, limitless, unbounded openings, connections of heart. It's uplifting. It's tender. It's beautiful. Why are we so scared of it? It's not really that we're scared of the compassion, but the only way we get there (laughs) is through the pain. And that is something we have to really bring our courage to bear on to be able to even remember and notice how much we're shutting down. And the first time I went to India, of course it was an assault on all the senses for quite some time, especially one who um, has a tendency towards aversive reactions to unpleasant experience, it can take some time to settle into just being with the way things are in a culture like India, but actually it liberated something in me being there, and it continues to do so when I go back, because there's no pretense that everything's fine. You can't walk down the street in India and think everything's fine, you know. It's just all out there. Birth and death, disease, craziness, happiness, joy, spiritual ecstasy. You know, it's all there, just walking down the street. It's fantastic. And I'm not trying to sentimentalize it. It's painful as hell. And what's really interesting for me always is to see how long can I actually stay open and connected and when does the heart shut? <laughs> Two seconds sometimes, <laughs> all day other times, you know. How long can I, can I look a beggar in the face and really connect, whether I give or not, almost immaterial, you know. And when I shut down, it took me some time to see that it's not their pain I'm shutting to, it's my pain. And that's really the key to our whole practice here to see how in shutting down to pain, mine, others, I'm shutting down to the world. I'm shutting down to connectedness. I'm shutting down to the richest and most beautiful part of myself, of life. Give an example on a more personal level, but just how by thinking we're protecting ourselves from pain, we're actually alienating ourselves from connectedness and love. My father, in the last few years, has developed Parkinson's disease. Not real severe, but, you know, it's progressive, it's having an effect. And in the first couple of years that he had it, it wasn't diagnosed, and he hadn't gone to a neurologist. And he, who had always been a very bright, very sharp, very athletic uh, person, really, you know, on the mark, 
started getting a little clumsy, sort of, it seemed like he was just going vacant. You know, he just kind of stand around and go, what did I come here for? Now, I'm like that half the time, so I don't know why that should have bothered me, but he would just, you could just see, like, something was going. And it was real painful for him, having uh, always really been so present. And it was really painful for me when I'd go home to visit. But I didn't really notice that, because I didn't really tune into the fact that I was going through the loss of the person I'd always known as my father, you know, that I could rely on to be a certain way, and to see that disappearing before my eyes, to see him beginning to get less sure of himself, to have his pain coming so much out into the forefront, to see his fear, you know, basically I hated it. And instead of opening, or really even allowing myself to feel that, my own suffering, I found myself getting really impatient with him. And it was so, then of course, I beat myself up mercilessly. But then the next time something would happen, he'd ask me the same question for the third time, or I'd be in the middle of a book, and he'd come up and say, what are you doing? <laughs> what do you think I'm doing, you know? Um, it took me some time to see, instead of, you know how, okay, I will not be impatient again. We make these resolves, right? I will be a better person. But we, we're just doing it out of self-hatred. We're not really looking at what's going on. And when I really allowed myself to feel the sense of sorrow and loss that I was feeling, to kind of grieve that, that connection with my pain, that was the key. The sense of impatience and almost pushing him away, you know, vanished. Because it wasn't his pain I was pushing away, it was mine. And after a while, we can't really separate the two very well, if at all. And what lets us connect again to this place of oneness, this potential for compassion, for caring, for kindness, both to myself, to my father, it's just the simple willingness to open to what our experience is, without judgment. It's not like I took a hammer to my heart and said, you better open up so you can be kind to your father. It was like, hey, let's look and see what's happening. Let's feel it. Let's meet experience directly and let awareness then take care of the rest. I heard a little snippet of a piece of news, I think it was last year, but it really spoke to me about how simple connection is what opens us to compassion. I uh, think Clinton was traveling, President Clinton was traveling in Africa sometime this year or last year. And all I heard, I didn't hear the whole story, but that he was in Rwanda and he had been talking with some of the people who had survived that horrific uh, period of massacres when millions of people were killed, people who had been wounded but survived. And, and you know how Clinton can be. He can sound and seem to genuinely be really touched face to face with somebody. And he was saying after this, making a statement that uh, 
regarding all those massacres in Rwanda at that time, that we, meaning we Americans, the Western world, whoever, were all, all part of that, that we are all responsible for that, you know, that we didn't do enough and so on. And I reflected on that. I thought later, you know, that wasn't really new information. What made him say that two, three, four years later? And I really think it's the fact of coming face to face with a person, you know, a living being rather than a sound bite or a talking head on television. You know, I remember Sister Fong, Sister Chan Kong, who works with Thich Nhat Hanh, saying back um, during the time of the Vietnam War, where they had been so active in Vietnam with both sides, that when she was out of the country and seeing, remember how much of that war was on TV, and seeing horrific things on TV, you know, people holding wounded and dead children. She said she'd been in the situations that she was seeing on TV, and she said seeing it on TV isn't the same as really being face to face, you know, as really opening to what's happening. And I think it was the same thing with Clinton. It's the same thing with us. It is really scary sometimes, can be really difficult, just to think about letting it all in, you know, if I open to all this, I'm going to drown. And we can't open all at once. You can try, but we can't. You know, we open little by little. But we can begin to explore a little bit some of the ways that we stay closed, some of the maybe unconscious habits that we get caught in that, that help us sort of block or deny the suffering in the world, the suffering in ourselves. I'll just mention a couple, and you can keep exploring on your own. The first is sort of um, just simple ignoring, denying, <laughs> just your basic flat out getting so involved in our own scenario that we can't see beyond what we think are our borders, sort of like the students in the University of Virginia. And we all do it just to be aware of it, but I can also see on retreat, it's a good place to explore how with all sincere good intentions, you know, we're really all here with good intentions, we can still get so caught in our own little scenario or big scenario the particular stories, a routine, you know, and somebody or something intrudes in our scenario. They sit in our space in the dining room, you know, or they cross our walking spot too close or whatever. And there's that moment when we can't see beyond our boundaries and that person is, you know, we can't see their suffering, we just see how it impacts us. As soon as we see beyond our own story, the whole story restructures. You know, it stops being me and them, and it's we. I'll give an example from my own practice. I was walking on a retreat here in the gym, downstairs in the gym, real early in the morning. I like to get up early and practice when it's quiet. And so this one morning, I just loved that time. I was walking really concentrated. It was really still, so peaceful, and for however long. And then the wake-up bell rang. And it was always 
not always fun, but interesting to watch the transition from this pristine, concentrated stillness to the doors opening and alarms going off and the toilets flushing and the showers going and people stomping up and down, you know, back and forth to their room in the bathroom. And I was just watching my concentration crumble, you know, and thinking, ah, these people are ruining my concentration. And that went on for a few minutes. And then just let go and the whole story restructured. It wasn't my concentration that these people were ruining, but, oh, conditions have changed. There were conditions before and there was concentration and now they've changed. But it isn't me or them. It's just we, you know, all doing our dance in the big picture. And then it was fine. Then it was fine. And that leads to just the second way I want to talk about that way of how we can care or open to so much in ourselves or in close people, but then everyone else somehow becomes the other, you know, because it's too much to let it all in. So when I was walking there and people started coming out and going to the bathroom, everybody was the other. Everybody in the whole of IMS was the other, you know, because they were in the way of my concentration. And just to watch how we do that and how powerful that can be. Like the Clinton and Rwanda thing, you know. Even though we think we care, it's easy just to read or hear and without meaning to, everybody in Rwanda or Bosnia or Northern Ireland or central LA becomes the other. The people in the house next door become the other. Aspects of ourselves become the other, you know? And it's too hard, we think, to open to that. I was having a, it was a great conversation with someone in an interview just about this. She was talking about visiting a hospital to see a certain person and really seeing the care that brought her to the hospital for that person and realizing after some visits how she was only there to connect with that person and everyone else was sort of, you know, beyond the realm of what we even notice. And I've done that myself, of course, both being in the hospital or visiting. It's almost as if I can handle being with this one person and their pain. But if I really look and see how many people are in this hospital, how many hospitals there are, just in this little area, and on and on and on. It's like, I can't bear it. I'll drown. Of course, it doesn't work that way. But seeing how it's like a repository of our fears, our sense of separation. I read a great article, some newspaper, USA Today, I think, about aggressive driving you know, road rage is suddenly a tag word that's all over the place. And it was a whole article about aggressive driving and how it's getting to be a real epidemic and, you know, on and on about it and what constitutes it. And they were talking to therapists, you know, who work with aggressive drivers, you know, how to calm them down. But this is what one of the therapists is is saying, talking about how 
aggressive driving is so easy to arise, saying, especially if we're in a car, if someone on the road upsets you, that individual's whole identity is encapsulated in this bad thing he did. He's not seen as a whole person. There's an urge to express your aggression on this anonymous other, to think, I can't let him get away with this. The thin veneer of civilization is removed. And they say it's like a car offers you anonymity, but if you were walking down the street and meeting face to face, there wouldn't be such a sense of otherness. You know, you look each other in the eye. So it's just, um, it's a very common experience. Noticing as we go through our days here, how unconsciously or subconsciously without realizing it, who here or who in the world has suddenly moved beyond the circle of kindness and become the other, either as a repository for our aggression or just because it feels like too much pain to open to. Because when we look, even though it might be feel that we're protecting ourselves by holding all that otherness at bay, it's our own potential to rest in our truest goodness. It's our own potential to really experience deepest happiness and peace that we're holding away from ourselves by holding away someone else's pain. Or by holding parts of our own experience. And that's something I think we might not always see here. What part of your own emotional landscape or physical experience or processes of thought somehow becomes the other, that isn't okay to surface, that the awareness is afraid to open to or doesn't even recognize as being openable to, you know, something that we have to get rid of. And I find it helpful when I'm feeling locked, I'm feeling like I can't, it's too much. I can't open, whether it's to, you know, the suffering in the world, one more newspaper article, or simply one more throb of the knee, you know, one more twinge of head pressure, thinking, I just can't do it, you know, I'm gonna, it's too heavy, the burden's too much, it's going to just make me bent and heavy and withered, you know, forget it, nobody could bear it. And then I look again, it's really, this is a reflection, but it helps me to reflect on people like these seven, you know, that I mentioned at the University of Virginia, to look at who really inspires me in the history of the world or in literature or people who are alive now. And it's the people who are really have that greatness of heart to open to and bear witness to the immense pain of a particular culture or of the world. It doesn't mean they're perfect human beings, you know. I'm sure the Dalai Lama and, and 
Archbishop Tutu are not perfect human beings. I'm sure Aung San Suu Kyi is not a perfect human being. But the thing I see when I look at these people is a, a sense of at-homeness more, with not being perfect. And that greatness of heart that allows them to be the loving witness to so much suffering. It's remarkably inspiring, I find, that the more one opens to, the more love and compassion and, yes, lightness is how we begin to hold the world, our own suffering and others. It's not this, the more we open to, the heavier we are until we can't pick our head up off the floor. There's more space. There's more lightness. There's more love. And where does such greatness of heart come from? We don't have to start out, you know, being Mother Teresa. We don't have to start out or even aspire to being Gandhi or Bishop Tutu or anybody. Uh, this summer I was teaching in Switzerland and one of the staff people said, it was really a heartfelt question after reading the newspaper, which is like every day, you know how the newspapers are. So much suffering in the world. And this friend was reading it, bombings, wars, famines, just the usual, really, which is pathetic. Um, and she said, it's so overwhelming. It feels like it's too late, you know, and there's so much to do, and what can I do, and of what earthly use can it be to sit here and follow my breath, you know, to sit here and bring open attention to my knee pain, and my hunger, and my shame, and hearing the tractors out there, and my aversion and whatever. It seems sometimes so insignificant, or even self-serving, or ostrich-like, you know, ostriches sticking their head in the sand. And that's where, for me, the power and the wonder, really the miracle of awareness, of the light of steady, kind awareness, pure, non-judging attention to just these little things that we're each experiencing through the day is that it really reveals the truth of ourselves and that that's the truth of all beings, the truth of the world, our interconnectedness, how we suffer, how we hide by trying to keep ourselves from suffering and create more suffering, how by doing that we create this false sense of separation. And as we see this little by little, without even trying, the heart, the mind, naturally transforms and responds from love and compassion. It just can't help it. That's what's so nice. You know, you might feel like you're the most selfish, uncompassionate person who ever lived. And it doesn't matter. If you just keep paying attention to what's coming up, that feeling of how unkind you are, the truth reveals itself. John Muir, the great naturalist, said once, I find that if I touch anything, it is connected to everything else in the universe. If I touch anything, that little niggling pain in your back, that's anything. Your self-hatred, 
That's anything. It's connected to everything else in the universe. And just the power of non-judging connection can reveal the universe in anything, even a painful experience. I want to read this poem from Mary Oliver. It's a little long, but you're not going anywhere. (laughs) It's called Singapore. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there, washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings. Rivers are pleasant, and of course trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first, we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She's washing the tops of airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life, and I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen, but maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. Neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. The light that can shine out of a life. We just have to be present with kind awareness to see that. Our life, your life, anybody's life. Where does such greatness of heart come from? It starts right here, right now, with whatever is going on in your own experience. When we open to ourselves, to our own pain, we open to the pain of the world. You don't have to get fancy or romantic about it. You don't have to have a really big gut-wrenching pain either. It can even start with the petty, the small petty pains. As someone said, we understand the universal 
through the specific. Just a little example, and it might sound petty, but it was really quite profound for this person. She told me a few years ago, she was here sitting and hungry one day, and clearly not starving to death, just hungry one day before lunch. And for the first time, she really opened to the experience of being hungry. Just that. I guess it had been a fearful experience for her. And in opening to that, finally, really feeling it, and the pain of it, not a big pain, right? This is, she said, she has spent months of her life in India, over many years, never really connected with how hungry so many of the people she met were. Just hadn't been able to. But by sitting here, feeling her hunger, she really felt her way into uh, an appreciation and a connection with the people she'd met in India, the hungry people in the world. That might sound facile, you know, easy to say, we're sitting here, we know we get three meals a day, you know. You could say that, but please don't just talk yourself out of honoring the path to our connectedness of the world by opening to our own sufferings, however petty they are. It's where we have to start, and it's good enough as a place to start. Just in one moment of opening like that, it's like reclaiming our wholeness, reclaiming the truth of what we really are. I was saying in an interview today, I was reminded of what a teacher of mine used to say. He'd say, uh, one spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. So we can stay cut off, separated, in denial, fighting, keeping something the other, for eons. And one moment of wholehearted connection and all of that other is gone. Because the truth is so strong. It's stronger than our denial. And we reclaim our wholeness not in spite of the pain and confusion, but through it. It becomes our avenue. So as you go through the days and the nights and the moments and the endless sittings and the walkings and another, you know, hell realm in the dining room, really looking with kindness at how are you meeting all of your demons. All of our demons come up on a retreat, the petty ones and the really, really scary ones. It's actually amazing, isn't it, how it seems that we each have had the retreat personally orchestrated that some kind of interaction with a yogi or the staff or something happens that really triggers our deepest patterns. I don't know how this works, but it does seem to happen for us. You just can't imagine it would. So, looking at how you're meeting your demons. I've read this before, but it's my favorite story about it, from Mila Repa. And Romila Repa was this great, Tibet's great yogi who lived for years and years in a cave just eating um, pine needles. In the Tibetan iconography, he's often green, you know, because he was just <laughs> the most fantastic yogi. So this story of him, he's been meditating for who knows how long. And his mind became blissful 
and he carried some wood back up to his cave. When he arrived there, he found in the cave seven metal demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding sampa, barley flour, some sat performing various magical tricks. So isn't it just like you go out walking, you're feeling so blissful, you come and sit down, and the demons are here, and they've made themselves at home, and you don't know how it happened. As soon as Mila saw them, he became frightened. He meditated on his deity, uttered a subjugating, a controlling mantra, performed a gaze, aroused the deity's presence, so you get the drift, we're trying everything to get rid of them. Then, after all that, he meditated on compassion and friendliness. It's usually the last resort. But he was unable to pacify them. So then he thought, you know, they may be local deities, and I've been here a long time, but I haven't praised them. So he sings a lot of, of poems, and I won't read the whole thing, but he sings a long poem of praise to the place, ending it with, you non-human demons assembled here are obstacles. Drink this cup of friendliness and compassion and be gone. <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> you know, and it, three of them who were performing magic went away. But he was unable to make the other four go away. Realizing that they were magical obstacles, he then sang another song, this time a song of confidence in his understanding. So we keep falling back. Long song of confidence ending in, it's wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. So, you know, a little more, but catch you later. <laughs> and three of them vanished like a rainbow. The remaining demon, though, performed an imposing dance, and Mila thought, this one is vicious and very powerful. So he sang a song of the pinnacle of his realization, the absolute peak of his understanding. And this one ends with, a demon like you does not intimidate me. If you could intimidate me, the arising of the mind of compassion would be of little meaning. Demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We'll talk out our differences. And then he, he says, uh, I feel compassion for this spirit. And he prays to Lord Vajradhara, grant your blessings so that this lowly one himself may have complete compassion. And then with friendliness and compassion, without concern for his body, Mila placed himself in the mouth of the demon. But the demon could not eat him and so vanished like a rainbow. So internal, external. It's our last fallback, the heart of compassion. But it's actually the strongest and most freeing way of meeting all the aspects of ourself 
that we try to demonize. Ask them in for tea. And then what starts to happen, really, is that the sense of my suffering, your suffering, my boundaries, the world's boundaries, really starts to get mushy, starts to go away a little bit. It's just the pain. Taman Chodron um, quotes Bernie Glassman in a wonderful way. I really like this, saying how you know Bernie Glassman's a Zen teacher who runs or used to run a project for the homeless in Yonkers in New York. And she said he heard him say something that struck her. He said he doesn't really do this work to help others. He does it because he feels that moving into the areas of society that he had rejected is the same as working with the parts of himself that he has rejected. It goes both ways. The parts of ourself, the parts of society that we reject. Working with one, working with both. And it strengthens from the intention of compassion that allows us to meet our sufferings here with kindness, the intention of open-hearted awareness of thought, strengthens into the natural, stronger intentions of speech and action so that there becomes a natural purification of how we act and who we are in the world to the point where it might not even be viewed as compassion. I heard this great phrase once of just doing the obvious. What's the obvious thing to do in this situation? An example that has quite moved me when I heard it on the radio was a couple years ago, a basketball player, a rookie, you know, his first year in the NBA in, I forget what team he was on. But you know how it is for someone to finally make the, uh, the NBA, it's like the pinnacle of someone's dream, you know? It couldn't go any further. And this guy, they're interviewing him on the radio. His sister lived in L.A., I think, and she needed a kidney transplant or she was going to die. And he was saying that if he was, uh, you know, a compatible donor, of course he would give her one of his kidneys, even though, I mean, he didn't even say this, the announcer was saying, but doesn't that mean you'd have to give up your career? Which I guess it did, I'm not sure why, but I guess it's too dangerous that you could damage the second kidney. And the announcer was going, oh, that's so amazing. And the guy was like, it's an obvious choice. He didn't say doing the obvious, but he might as well have. And what, <laughs> there's nothing to think about. It's my sister, if she needs a kidney, I give it to her. You know, what's playing basketball compared to that? It was so beautiful because it was so unselfconscious. It wasn't any, aren't I a great being? He was just doing the obvious. To me, that was like the perfect example of a life of compassion. Not holding ourselves as special, but just the natural transformation from, as Joko Beck phrases it, from a self-centered view of life and practice to a life-centered view. We're part of life, but we're not like, each of us is not the central core. We can look at the whole picture. And it happens naturally. 
I know each of you has seen that transformation happening naturally here. You know, in the times when your neighbor or somebody does something that's just aggravating you, and anger, anger, anger at them, anger at yourself, self-judging, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly there's this openness to the whole picture and the movement of connectedness, compassion. You see the pain that caused that behavior. You feel the pain that caused your own reaction. And there's just a putting down of the story. It's a little thing, but it's the natural purification from awareness to the heart of compassion. And besides it happening naturally, awareness gives us a choice. The times that we see, and it's painful, isn't it, to see how much of our actions, our thoughts, come from greed, come from aversion. But again, the willingness to open to that pain gives us that moment of choice. And we begin to see that much more often than we might have thought we do have a choice where to let the heart and mind dwell. Quite often we do have a choice which response to choose. And if we're willing to face the pain of the times we can't make the response we'd like to make, then it becomes actually easier and easier to make that response we would like to make. From Viktor Frankl. We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of his freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's way. It's not easy. We won't always make the choice, the wisest choice, but if we continue having the courage to look, we can really begin to choose our way. And in transforming ourselves, we really do transform the world. Thich Nhat Hanh, someone asks him, there are so many urgent problems, what should I do? And he says, take one thing and do it very deeply and carefully, and you will be doing everything at the same time. So let's do our practice very deeply and carefully. Let's meet ourselves open-heartedly, deeply, and carefully. And in changing ourselves, we're changing the world. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.